Now on Netflix. Inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman comes the new movie, Hitman, from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman. Now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. It's said that he died laughing, but is that really what happened to Chrysippus of Soli? If you enjoy this episode on the Stoic Greek philosopher and want to hear more of history's most fascinating lives and deaths, check out our series Famous Fates. You can hear the entire catalog, all 45 episodes, exclusively on Spotify. Follow Famous Fates today. In the meantime, enjoy this episode. Sir, sir. Yes, yes. What is it that you need? Are you indeed who I think you are? I'm not certain any man is who he thinks he is. Well, sir, are you not Chrysippus, the Stoic teacher, who has received so much praise? I am. It's about my son, Phileas. He is of the age that I wish him to gain greater understanding of the world. You wish him to be taught how best he should think and how best he should live. Precisely, sir. I want my son to learn from the greatest minds possible, but there are so many choices about. Tell me, under whom should he study such things? Me. Just you, sir? Who else? For if I suspected that there was someone else better than me, I should myself be studying philosophy with him. He was definitely a man who thought highly of himself, even as he espoused a philosophy stating that no man is greater than the random whims of the cold, uncaring universe. He was a man whose arrogance could turn people off, and yet as the third head teacher for Stoicism, one of the main competing philosophies in ancient Greece, there is no question that his influence continues to touch our lives today. We could say that Christianity, which rose out of a culture steeped in Stoicism, parallels many of the tenets codified by Chrysippus. 200 years before Christ. While the goals of each are clearly different, the essential frame of mind is strikingly similar. And in modern psychology, the core principles of cognitive behavioral therapy line up near perfectly with Stoicism, namely accepting our circumstances and making a distinction between those things we can control and those we can't. Well, there are, of course, radical differences deep in the nuances of the philosophy, but the similarities are key, showing that the fingerprints of Chrysippus and Stoicism still linger over 2,000 years later. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. And I'm Carter Roy. Welcome to Famous Fates, a ParCast original exclusive to Spotify. Each week, we'll release five fresh episodes centered around a common theme, such as Hollywood icons, influential women, or music legends. In each episode, we'll take a close look at the remarkable life of a different person. With the help of voice actors, we'll dramatize their incredible lives, reimagining their greatest and weakest moments. Then we'll examine their controversial deaths. Some deaths came too soon, some remained shrouded in mystery, and some changed the world forever. Today we're covering Chrysippus of Soli, a Greek philosopher whose ideas still resonate today. 
It said that he died laughing. But is that really what happened to the stoic thinker? You can find episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. To stream Famous Fates for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find it on Spotify. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Now, back to the life of Chrysippus of Soli. Okay, here's the big Olympic hurdle we've got to clear. When we talk about ancient Greeks, or ancient anything at all, we're almost always talking about something we know very little about. Pretty much everything we know about any ancient Greek philosopher, for instance, is at best a vague picture created from a multitude of fragments called from various sources. Oh, let's put it this way. If we could assemble an ancient philosopher from puzzle pieces spread across a table, we'd be lucky to get a tenth of the picture. And we'd be even luckier if we got the old guy's face. So how do we know anything about these people at all? Well, one good starting point is a book called Lives and Opinions of Eminent Philosophers, written around the year 200 by a historian named Diogenes Laertius. Ironically, Diogenes Laertius goes so far back in time that we don't know much about his life either. Talk about keeping an air of mystery. It's almost like these guys were trying to lay low from the history books. Right. Luckily, alongside the writings of Diogenes, we have stray bits of description left behind by others in antiquity, like the Roman historian Seneca and Epictetus, and the Roman philosopher king Marcus Aurelius. All of whom mention Chrysippus in their own words, with varying degrees of respect or disdain. Wow, disdain? Not for his ideas, really, but for him, personally. Weird to think of a historian treating a philosopher with any version of disrespect. And yet, some of the things written about him can only give us the impression of a man who was, um, let's say, overconfident. Even as a student, just learning his way around the various philosophies, he had an air of unwon superiority. You've been at the Stoa now for many months, Chrysippus. Are you happy? Teacher, I don't believe you mean to actually ask me if I'm happy. Strictly speaking, no. Study cannot be a pleasure, for pleasure is a thing indifferent. We are not Epicureans, after all. Are we Cleanthes? Most assuredly not. We give no value to pleasure. It is not the source of union with the natural order, nor is pain. Virtue in itself is sufficient to constitute happiness. You're right, but do you not still strive for that union you speak of? And is not the attainment of that union a goal? A goal implies control over our fate. I do not believe, sir, that we can ever find what you call happiness in the pursuit of outcomes we cannot control. But my student, surely your objection implies that to act at all is folly. Do you propose that a man should simply do nothing with his life but wait for fate to wash him away from the earth? Not nothing. He should embrace that which comes to him by the whim of the universe, while in the midst of his daily life. But surely... Dear teacher, I do not need these lessons. Your arguments are unworthy of you and me. I will grant you more time with other students if you simply supply me with your theories, but not your proofs. I'll come to those myself. You have to wonder how a guy like this could become the frontman of a philosophy that prides itself in remaining as blank-faced as possible. Ah, but 
that's where the misconception rears its stone-faced head. When we think of a stoic, we're almost always thinking of it in the modern sense of the word. I'm reminded of the British temperament during World War II bombing raids, how the English were so famous for keeping a stiff upper lip, not letting the Nazi campaign destroy their spirit. Or we may think of the person who's lost their job but stands tall on the other side of that closed door with a sense of confidence and can-do attitude rather than despair. As noble and enviable as these reactions are to those circumstances, the ancient definition goes much deeper into, well, the philosophy of it all. Sounds a bit like our definitional confusion regarding other philosophies that sprang up roughly the same time as Stoicism, namely Epicureanism and Cynicism. Well, those two words also have slightly different meanings in modern times. Yeah, the word Epicurean today calls to mind someone who might get their drink on a bit too much. And today's cynicism screams, beware of the sarcastic hipster. But in reality, they, along with Stoicism, were each pillars of ancient widespread thought, and their vast tenets required a lifetime of study to master. Cynicism, in the most basic of interpretations, said that virtue is only attainable through the outright rejection of all material things. It's the logical extreme of the ascetic lifestyle of Socrates. The cynics could be spotted easily, as they were the ones in ragged clothes living in barrels on the streets and refusing any comfort or aid offered by a stranger. Stoics reject this idea, saying instead that material goods, while not intrinsically moral or immoral, can have value if they're used properly. Epicureanism was a bit of a 180 from cynicism, saying the chief aim of man is to avoid pain, thus any pleasure is good, insofar as it was an escape from pain. Well, obviously, this is a philosophy that can be abused if applied without moderation. Which is exactly why the Stoics rejected it. To them, pleasure was not a virtue in itself, to be pursued for its own sake, but that the ultimate pleasure only comes from assimilating with the fate the universe has supplied you. All three are similar in that they assign value in terms of what is already physically present. They had definitely gone a different route than Plato and those guys who will unpack more in a moment. But even though they all had a similar materialistic bent, they were still forever at odds with each other. Lots of shouting and door slamming? More like debating, but essentially, yes. Maybe we can think of these pillars of thought like ancient cable news stations, each dispensing essentially the same ideas, but with radically different spins. That's a fair analogy. Well, they might balk at the word spin, since each was convinced their ideas were the only paths toward peace with nature and the universe. Sounds like modern politics to me. Well, maybe you're right after all. But before we get deeper into stoicism itself, it's important to see where it came from in the first place. We need to look at the world Chrysippus was born into. Good idea. Nothing exists in a vacuum. Absolutely. After all, Chrysippus and his philosophy didn't emerge fully formed from the head of Zeus. There's a long and rich history of philosophy packed into the Hellenistic period. That would be the stretch of time that falls between the death of Alexander the Great in 323 BC to the establishing of the Roman Empire in 31 BC, roughly 300 years. Well, a lot can happen in 300 years. Mm -hmm. Think of all that's happened in the long history here in America, and America isn't even near 300 years old yet. Well, across the 300 years of the Hellenistic period, we can plot a timeline that shows the slow and steady movement of philosophy from a strict Platonic idealism to what some would have called the degenerate rise of materialism in Stoicism and Epicureanism. 
bit of a shift from the sacred to the profane? I might not go that far, but I would say that a chunk of time that long with that many generations can encompass a whole lot of varying thoughts on the same general subject. Listeners will recall from our episode on Socrates that even in his time, roughly 100 years prior, there were many competing philosophies, and that he was such an influential figure, they built the timeline around him. Well, during Socrates' time, the predominant focus of philosophy was on the concept of ideal models. It's a strange concept from our modern perspective. Luckily, Socrates had a star pupil, Plato, who helped the world understand what he was talking about. Basically, the idea is that there is an unseen world of ideals or perfect versions of the things we see around us. For instance, if I say, think of a tree. Okay, I'm thinking of a tree. Well, the only way you know how to picture a tree is that there is an ideal version of a tree in some ideal world beyond our vision. He said any tree you see with your own eyes is but a shadow version of the perfect tree. Mm. Plato claimed that while these earthly material shadow versions of ideals would all eventually fall away, the ideals themselves would never change or decay. Mm, that's some manufacturer's warranty. <laughs> a promise to last till the end of time. Well, now you're just quoting 80s lyrics. <laughs> well, Plato was the inspiration for the idea that these everlasting ideals were perfect, while the physical world is just a poor, corrupted copy. Plato expanded on this idea at the Academy, the forum that he established, which essentially became the world's first university. His own student, Aristotle, you've heard of him, started a second so-called university called the Lyceum, also in Athens. In time, philosophical thought began to trend away from strict adherence to the concept of ideals, which could only be an abstract concept, and more toward more materialistic brands of philosophy. Perhaps this was due to the constant state of war and struggle in Alexander the Great's world. Who could continually look at the corruption of governments and man's obvious tendency toward bloodshed and maintain faith in some invisible ideal world? So by centuries end, the word of Socrates, Plato, and to an extent Aristotle had been all but rejected. And inside that thought vacuum rose a group called the Cynics. Again, these weren't the guys in the back row of the academy coolly mocking the teacher and declaring politicians had no soul. Not hardly. Again, cynicism in the ancient world was a regimented system of thought, not a flippant attitude. Alongside the war and corruption, Greece was actually prosperous, economically with trade, culturally with festivals and dress, civically with better planned cities, and generally more elaborate accommodations. This rising sense of comfort and pride in place ran parallel to the decline in the concept of perfect ideals and basically created a spiritual vacuum that was filled by much more earthbound schools of thought. And now we're closing in on the time of Chrysippus, right? Close. But before him, we need to meet a wandering searcher named Zeno, who founded Stoicism after virtually stumbling into philosophy by accident. From my perch, sir, here at my fruit basket, I have seen you wandering these streets with such a perplexed look upon your face. You have a keen eye, my friend. But perplexed is too light a word for my worries. I believe you do not call Athens your home. Again, I salute your observational skills. No, I am a merchant from Cyprus. My ship broke apart in the recent storm and I have nothing left. That I can see. You remind me of the crazy old cynics I see running around. Living in discarded tubs, going unwashed. Ah. I've been hearing about them since I arrived. I've wanted to meet one. I assure you, they do not want to meet you. What do you mean? They want nothing from this life, but nothing at all. And, if I can be honest, they can be rather 
oppressive in their fidelity to their philosophy. Do you have any writings of theirs? I would love to read more about their beautifully austere way of life. I see the wisdom of your plan. To find a way of thinking that matches your current state of affairs. Now doesn't that sound like a reasonable way to live? Perhaps. But why read about them when you can speak to them? There goes one now. The story goes that Zeno met the randomly passing cynic, fell into conversation, and then and there found his new path. Under the tutelage of the cynics, he molded and shaped his own particulars regarding the cynic's philosophy, and began to teach it himself under one of the many covered walkways that surrounded the great agora in Athens. In Greek, these walkways were called stoa, and the students that began to study under Zeno were called Stoics. Ah, it's all starting to come together. We'll return to our story in just a moment. And now back to the story. At the Stoa, deep in the heart of Athens, founder and teacher Zeno established the basic tenets of what would later be called Stoicism and gathered a growing number of students who saw in his philosophy a pure extension of their own desire to attain peace. Here's what I know from my time with the cynics, my dear students. I know that we should all strive for these two things. A clean detachment from external circumstances, that is nothing that happens to you should ever become you, you are not what you feel. So are we to just shut our eyes to the pain around us? To ignore the suffering that threatens to break our spirits? By no means. You should consider the misfortune of your state as part of the order of things. Accept them as part of nature. Part of the rational law of life. And that is the second tenet. That to do so allows one to be in harmony with nature. He developed this theme of detachment from passion over his time leading the Stoa. This detachment is called by its Greek word, apatheia. I can hear the word apathy in there. Mm, but apathy is far from the soul of Stoicism. Well, apathy implies lack of energy or lack of care. A true Stoic was fully engaged in the struggles of life. The big difference was that he knew that there were many events of life that he had absolutely no control over. And those uncontrollable events are the ones a Stoic would simply accept as part of his fate. Zeno stood by this idea for the rest of his life. Meanwhile, across the Aegean Sea, along the southern rim of modern Turkey, in the town of Soli, there was a young man named Chrysippus who was experiencing some life events of his own, none of which he had control of. Chrysippus was the son of Apollonius, and we know from Diogenes that he had at least one sister. He met some bad fortune early in life when his father died. Then the inheritance he had coming to him got tied up in some legal controversy. We don't know the details, but we can guess it must have stirred some anger. Mm, maybe anger enough to leave home? Hard to say, but we do know that he suddenly had to live his life with no paternal guidance and no money to make his way. But he still had a couple of things on his side. Diogenes mentions that Chrysippus used to practice as a long-distance runner, and that he also nursed a growing interest in philosophy. Surely he'd heard stories of the great hustle and bustle of the big city of Athens across the sea. And with his twin interests of running and thinking, it wouldn't be a stretch to think he might have a life there. A little Olympic glory on the track. Couple of endorsement deals. Maybe some wise color commentating after the legs finally give out. Bright lights, big city. So he packed up his light load and hit the road for Athens. It's not hard to imagine how events like these might have helped to feed the overly self-reliant and self-regarding man he became. 
Well, it didn't take long for Chrysippus to fall in with the full range of philosophers. He did some time at the Academy, the one established by Plato so long ago, where he gained a reputation for a sophisticated debating style that incorporated arguing for both sides. Meaning he could even convincingly argue that which he didn't believe, a so-called devil's advocate, centuries before the phrase ever existed. According to historians, he proved his skill at this fake-out debating by promoting such things as marriage among family members and eating corpses, all while using language better suited to streetwalkers than to deities. Yes, a little shock value goes a long way, because over time, his standing as a leading Athenian philosopher, and specifically as a Stoic, began to spread. And his powerful debating style struck fear in many of the other houses of philosophy. His teacher at the Stoa was Cleanthes, who had followed as the head of the school when Zeno died. And Chrysippus was his star pupil. So when Cleanthes himself passed on, he was a shoo-in for the position, one he held for the rest of his life. History sees Chrysippus as the most important of the early Stoics for his dedication to gathering together the loose organization handed to him by Zeno and Cleanthes. What they taught became something that he not only continued to teach, but codified into a unified dogma that he constantly wrote about, some say up to 500 lines a day. He eventually wrote many books about his growing philosophy faith, though to use the word book is a bit of a misnomer. Well, as anyone at the time did, he wrote on papyrus paper, and it's doubtful a book was any longer than a common pamphlet or booklet today. Still, we have it on the good word of Diogenes that Chrysippus was a highly prolific writer and maxed out by the end of his days at roughly 700 books. 700? Oh, too bad they hadn't invented royalties yet. <laughs> Again, though, Diogenes gives us a slightly different explanation for some of that amazing output. Writing again, Chrysippus? Follow your eyes to your tongue. Looks like more on the ethics, with special mentioning of... Uh, wait a moment. Uh, that looks familiar. Is that Medea? Yes. By Euripides. Yes. I'm citing him. Citing him? It's the whole thing. It's the Medea of Chrysippus. <gasps> the absolute hubris. To be fair, Diogenes records this story, but he doesn't tell us exactly why Chrysippus was copying the entire thing. We can speculate that since Chrysippus was from modern-day Turkey, not Greece, he would have needed to improve his non-native writing style, so he could have just been practicing. Or it's possible he could have been, like many others, making a bit of side cash in the book copying trade. We'll never know. But what we do know is that he actually did write at length about Stoicism, because his original words were themselves copied by later Stoics like Seneca, Epictetus, and others. His original words, and the work he did toward binding up all of his predecessors' ideas into a cohesive philosophy, are what we remember. His contribution was so important that many who followed him had to conclude, quote, Without Chrysippus, there is no Stoa. A fitting epitaph for anyone who devoted their life to the furthering of a philosophy meant to bring stability and peace into the follower's life. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now back to the story. Just like most of the life of Chrysippus, which is at best a vague collection of apocryphal stories from books written centuries after he lived, his death is a point of major supposition. We at least have it from several sources that he died at the age of 73. Well, that's true. He lived to be a healthy old age, didn't he? 
must have lived as well as his philosophy taught him to live. As far as his death, though, we've been handed down two very different stories. Mm, two endings. Kind of like those choose-your-own-adventure stories I read when I was a kid. Yes, but which one you choose to believe, if either one at all, depends on your ability to picture a real man in a real situation in actual history. Mm, you really built up the suspense. Uh, what's the first version? Okay, of the two, it's probably the more easy to believe. It should be noted that in ancient Greece, drinking wine that had not been properly diluted with water was not only considered barbaric. Drinking undiluted wine would make someone seem less than couth? <laughs> yes. Then the Stoics in general were never really regarded as the black tux type, but we know from history that it could also be quite deadly if imbibed in great quantity. Of course, we bypass all this today with the modern processes, but the best the ancients could do with winemaking still left them with plenty of high acid, low alcohol, and often moldy wine. Mm, the narrow openings of typical ancient wine containers called crateras, or more famously, Grecian urns. Well, thanks to poet John Keats and his Ode on a Grecian Urn. Yes, the openings were narrow enough they could stop some of the worst from happening post-fermentation, but water was still added to try and dilute all those ill effects. Now you're going to tell me Crispus drank some moldy wine? I'm so glad you could make it to the feast, Crispus. We honestly didn't think you'd come. You rarely accede to such social gatherings as this. You've often said... I know what I've said. No need to repeat myself back to me. I've said that if I wanted to attend with the multitude, I would not have been a philosopher. Another cup of wine for you? Indeed. The Buffonia calls for celebration, does it not? The killing of an ox for the gods. I seek to learn all things. Certainly. Here you go, Christopher. <laughs> Chrysippus! What is happening? Surely it's just the effects of the wine. I've grown quite dizzy, my son. But it's beyond drunkenness. Help me to the ground. Let me see your cup. Yeah. You've been giving him wine that's not yet been diluted. Oh! Do not demonstrate your emotions. I cannot be swayed to sadness, my young student. It appears this could be my last day on this fair earth. But, Chrysippus, there was so much left to be learned. You must let the universe find its proper path for you. Embrace it as you would calm a wind in your face. For the path that is yours is the only path that can bring peace to you. This is my path, and it has been mine to endure. And now I am at its end. According to this legend, Chrysippus died five days later, and it was attributed to the curse of excess undiluted wine. So we're saying alcohol poisoning. Well, I'd say the final verdict has been hidden from us by a couple of millennia's worth of history. It could have been a severe allergic reaction to the mold. Or if he'd already been suffering from acidosis, a buildup of acid in the body over time, this might have finally been one drink too many. In any case, that would be quite a notable ending for a man who'd lived his life according to the whims of his own path. And it would have been the proper end for a man who was never opposed to wine when the universe brought it his way. 
But the historian Diogenes provides a second version of the death of Chrysippus. Why do I get the feeling it won't be quite as elegant? <laughs> While the first was surely filled with many tears over the loss of a great teacher, the second is filled with nothing but drunken laughter. Apparently, as this legend goes, Chrysippus was outside drinking wine. Diluted this time. Let's hope. Meanwhile, he was also eating from a plate of figs. Now remember, if this is true, it happened to a real man in history who lived and felt and had family and friends. It may be remarkable, but it's not impossible. Chrysippus, perhaps in between slugs of wine, seems to not have noticed the donkey that had sidled up to his figs. <laughs> Remind me never to order a table outside. <laughs> the donkey, unbeknownst to Chrysippus, began eating the figs right off his plate. Ah, I would definitely ask for my money back, but how is this deadly? Well, Chrysippus ordered a nearby servant to help the donkey wash down the figs with some of the wine. I'm sorry, sir. You want me to do what? <laughs> I'm not making fun of you, sport. Please just do as I ask. Give the donkey my wine. Yes, sir. <laughs> That's perfect. Yes, more. He seems to like it. <laughs> the old man thought the sight of that donkey drinking wine was so funny that he continued laughing and couldn't seem to stop. Oh, oh look at that poor beast. <laughs> the tragedy comes with the fact that he only stopped laughing when he died. Chrysippus died laughing? That's the legend, believe it or not. Well, it's not entirely impossible to believe. History and medicine both record instances of death by laughter. The seriousness of dying from laughter is obscured by the ubiquity of the idiom to die laughing, but depending on the health of the one who's laughing, an overdose of cackling can in fact cause a heart attack, a brain hemorrhage, or even asphyxiation. Well, we can't know the physical health of Chrysippus, but the man was 73, so anything's possible. But there's little denying the major irony of a Stoic giving in to fits of laughter that led to his demise. But it's only ironic if you're using the modern definition of Stoic. An actual ancient Stoic would find the ultimate release from the troubles of this world a success. Now one wonders if the story might have been cooked up by his enemies to make the arrogant old man seem foolish. Or by his champions who wished to prove that one of their greatest teachers had actually reached the ultimate stoic plateau of reality and had died the most contented man in the entire ancient world. But let's be honest, it's hard to imagine either story taking place the way they're told by Diogenes. Perhaps they're apocryphal, and yet each in its own way captures something about the philosophy he lived by. And death by possible alcohol poisoning at a ceremonial gathering would at least show a man engaging with his culture, something Stoics were never discouraged from doing. And death by laughter would prove beyond the pale that Chrysippus was dedicated to a life that was to be enjoyed. Which leads us back to the great misunderstanding of Stoicism in our time, that it's supposed to be some unemotional wall we build around ourselves to protect us from our own feelings. But as we can see from the continuing expression of his ideas in modern religious practice, as well as in modern applied psychology, Stoicism is an attempt to point us in the direction of greater happiness. Not towards some resolute, stone-faced dismissal of joy or sadness. And the echoes of this are all throughout the New Testament of the Christian Bible. 
The Apostle Paul, who lived in the heyday of later Stoicism and who was well-educated in the philosophies and religions of his time, is credited with about half of the contents of the New Testament, and within his commands and exhortations, there are striking similarities in themes. For instance, both Paul and the Stoics taught that the greater good of the cosmopolis, or the city of God, is a higher need than one's own city or tribe. This was in a time when extreme nationalism was the default. So I guess it's good to be a citizen of the world. Exactly. The similarities stack up when you include mutual ideas on living consistently on an inner man and an outer man constantly at odds with each other, and the use in the Gospel John of the Greek word logos. The word logos had many different uses throughout the last several millennia, but the Stoics specifically used the word to mean the animating principle of the universe that which sets fate in motion. Later, John, one of the four gospel writers, used the word in the same way as the reason for all that is from the beginning of time, though he, of course, specifically called out that animating principle as the Hebrew God. Yes, it's important to remember that while John and Paul lived during the height of later Stoic thought, and that they seemed to be saying the same thing as the Stoics, what they called God were two very different things. In the Bible, all is focused on an eternal God, one with an active and ongoing participation in history. While the Stoics believed in a faceless force that randomly doled out a fate that was yours no matter how hard you tried to change it. But the acknowledgments of physical reality and the challenges it presented to inner peace and happiness were effectively the same. Still, the Stoics were saying it first, which means one could say that with the spread of Christianity, Some of the ideas codified by Chrysippus have been spread all over the world. Not bad for a kid from Soli. Who might have died laughing. He was an important guy with, let's face it, a light bio, but a heavy legacy. He was, perhaps, a self-centered man. But we don't want to leave you thinking he was just some arrogant, insufferable man, like your least favorite college professor. We also know from Diogenes that when Chrysippus learned his sister died, he sent for his nephews, took them in, and taught them at the Stoa. It's easy to imagine Chrysippus consoling the young men with the very ideas he'd been refining for years. They were obviously gracious. Upon his death in 206 BC, they commissioned a statue of the great philosopher and placed it in the Ceramicus, the legendary ancient cemetery in Athens. Well, that's proof enough he wasn't all bad. And he had at least enough selfless forethought to cinch up his own teacher's ideas for all of history to study. To paraphrase that most ancient of conclusions about him, Without Chrysippus, we would have no Stoicism. Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes of Famous Fates and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Famous Fates is a Spotify exclusive. Well, not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Famous Fates for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Famous Fates on Spotify, just open the app and type Famous Fates in the search bar. Remember, it's a Spotify exclusive, so you can only find the show right here. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time.